It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Jörg Tittel. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Now, you are a bit of a multi-skilled character. You are a director, writer, producer in both film and video games. Yeah. There's also links to comics as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you say multi-skilled, I say master of none, but, I mean, that's the... Uh... That's the beautiful thing about being director. You can just have uh, opinions on stuff and then sort of people think you're an authority of some kind. But isn't that phrase, jack of all trades, master of none, it goes on a bit further and actually the jack of all trades becomes a positive, not a pejorative. Uh, well, I mean, if it wasn't positive, I would have hung myself by now, probably. <laughs> because, I mean, imposter syndrome is hard enough. Indeed it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you also want to have the sort of, you know, you know, misunderstood genius sort of complex. Well, you can't be a martyr, can you, if you don't feel sorry for yourself? Absolutely. (laughs) Having stumbled into these daft vocational careers. (laughs) It's funny, this martyr thing, actually, because I know we have to talk about some projects later, but I mean, like, one one guy who I really uh, admire very much as a film director Mm. is is Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. And, And did you know that he wrote this book about Jesus? No, I didn't. Okay, so he... That, so he That's already so slowly Paul, blowing my mind as you're about to tell me the story, but go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he is... <laughs> uh, so he's one of the world's um, top specialists on everything Jesus-related. Paul Verhoeven, the wow. director of uh, Showgirls yes. and Basic Instinct and... Uh, uh, oh, and of, uh, you know, Black Book, of course. Yes, indeed. And... Uh, and, uh, and all these great films that he did back in his Dutch days, uh, not to mention one that I'll talk about later. And, and of course, the, you know, Robocop and uh, Total Recall. I mean, Jesus, I mean, his films rock, you know, L. But, but none of them give um, you a clue. I mean, maybe his latest one gives you a clue as to his Jesus obsession. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, he He's... But the one thing about the Jesus thing, I got on on this uh, subject, I think, because of the martyr thing. I Mm. guess was he was he a martyr? I guess he was, Um, uh, or was he at all? I don't know. Um, Who knows? He didn't seem to um, care, as far as I was, as far as I understood him. He was kind of always going to do whatever he bloody wanted from a film. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of like you know, sort of Jeff Bezos in a way. No, the other one, Elon Musk. You know, sort of born rich. Well. Rich in terms of in spirit, at least. I mean, he was God's son, for God's sake. I mean, imagine, you know, having <laughs> that powerful. You don't care, do you? It is, yeah. Uh, Jesus Christ, Elon Musk has a God complex. He thinks, what if he thinks he's the second coming? But anyway, um, but yes, he did this. He he wrote this script. He wanted to make a film about Jesus, but, um, but Scorsese had already made his film. 
and then and then Mel Gibson uh, really sort of put the nail. I was going to say in the coffin, but in this case, it's more like the hands and stuff um, for Paul's film uh, that he that he'd been in development forever, and it was called Jesus of Nazareth. It might have been the sort of working title, I don't know. But the book that he wrote, which I really highly recommend, is called Jesus of Nazareth by Paul Verhoeven. Wow. And, and it's really cool because it starts out with an excerpt from the script that he wrote for the film. And and you see some bearded, like, you know, uh, emaciated dude hanging off a cross, you know, nails in his hands and feet and stuff. And the camera sort of uh, zooms out a little bit and pulls back. And then you have two other bearded fellas sort of hanging off like adjacent crosses, like yeah. as we know. But then the camera continues pulling out even further. And you realize that there's some other surrounding hill, hills and hillocks with more people hanging off crosses. And then it says nine months BC. Wow. And then the camera goes down even further into the into the town villages below and you see these roman soldiers rampaging through the streets and sort of stealing you know pillaging and raping everyone etc it's a paul verhoeven film so of course sexual violence will happen in it and one of the victims of this sexual violence is you know jesus's mother and so, who is then? So no, he's ashamed. not. He's not. He's really. He's going yes. there. He's going there. Yes. He goes there because he said he was trying to. Like, how how do we scientifically and psychologically explain the idea that someone suddenly out of nowhere comes? I have no idea how it happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also to him, it also explained why he had such an affinity for bringing people together. How he could speak to how he as a as a as a Jew could speak to you know, what would be future Christians, I guess. Yeah. Um, and people from 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 other tiers of society, other other cultures even, because in Paul Verhoeven's view, he was mixed race. He was mixed cultured. He was this alien creature, this hybrid, who this uh this this transcendental character that uh, was was the result of of a mystery because he ultimately was the 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 product of of shame and violence and suffering. Wow. Wasn't I mean, it, York, was, it wasn't where I thought we were going to go today, but that's that's I'm, and I didn't either. And I'm just reading a rev, uh, reading a pithy re, four-star review on Google Google Reads just how it's why see the cover of this book and it says what happens when an accomplished filmmaker delves into the realm of historical Jesus scholarship? Question mm-hmm. mark. The answer, fresh insight. <laughs> That's the review. I love it. Yeah. 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 He's even, I mean, he actually he's been accepted by, and I forgot what the name of the society is called. Is it called the Jesus Scholars or the Jesus hmm. Society or something like that? It's a group of of top scholars and sort of academics and historians, etc., cetera, uh, who have been studying Jesus for decades. And, and they've invited him uh, into their ranks. They actually accept him as a proper scholar of Jesus. Uh, and it's not a religious group, it's an academic group, but some of the people... Some of the I, people I must admit, are, I, I, I've, I've not read a great deal, but what I have in terms of like the academic look at... Th- Theology and mixing it with what trying to work out what history, where in history this might have happened. There's a wonderful book. I think it's at, I think it's a Cambridge scholar whose name escapes me right this second. Called just simply called the history of Satan, mm-hmm. and it, and it just basically takes you through all the societies 
basically all the organized religions and and the presence of Satan in those religions because Satan doesn't feature as a name in any in hardly any of the religious the main religious texts but the presence of Satan as a thing as a concept has existed as long existed long before the the the, the texts were were became the thing that you you look to so it's just basically yes. a, just basically a folk devil literally a folk devil you know all well, the way it was it, it wasn't until he bought twitter that we knew what he looks like <laughs> Right then, let's uh, let's move into the uh, podcast. Before we do go, you're going to talk to us about three films, brackets, two films, one video game, that impacted everything in your adult life uh, in a moment or two. But before we do, I thought we might talk about um, your new video game, which I believe now is launched. No, no, it hasn't launched yet, but it will launch in early 2023. But uh, yeah, it's called The Last Worker, and it's a political, social satire, I would say, probably. It's a sort of first-person narrative adventure with stealth elements set in a near-future fulfillment center the size of Manhattan, well, the sunken city of Manhattan at that point. Mm. And um, and it's uh, it's run by the Jungle Corporation, or, or spelled Jungle with an umlaut. This was founded by a wonderful German guy called Josef Jungle, who moved to the States in 1946. I'm sure he was very lovely wherever he came from. <laughs> and, Can't imagine. Uh, Can't imagine what his background was. No idea. And... Um, and so his lovely uh, company brings products to people all over the world through the power of the internet. Um, not at all inspired by any sort of real world corporations at oh. all. And uh, uh, purely coincidental, I'm an incredibly imaginative man, you see. Yeah, and, I can uh, see how you're, you're, you're basically visioning a future that we, we might encounter. Yeah, who knows? It's probably <laughs> impossible. <laughs> What I'm describing here, and uh, and you you play and you embody because it's also playable in VR. Uh, a guy called Kurt, who who is the last human worker in this facility, because all your colleagues are robots, and uh, and then you get um, you have to fulfill uh, you know people's dreams, you know their orders, because you know which makes your life incredibly fulfilling as well, I'm sure. And uh, and as you do this, at some point you get approached by a group of activists uh, who want you. To well, to recruit you from the outside to try and dismantle this corporation from the inside, and so you have to juggle your day to day. Yeah, this sort of working from home, as you call it, at this point, because you've been stuck in there for twenty five years, with uh, with trying to sort of you know weigh your sort of all moral compass against this whole thing and see whether you actually want to go against this wonderful stable employment you've had and yeah so it's an intense experience and not at all inspired by any real world events whatsoever so hold on a second so your character you as the character choose to take on the corporation you you can choose not to and still play the game there is a choice yeah at a certain point in the game it's not it's not like a super complex moral system throughout yeah uh, yeah. because there's a very firm narrative but there are three different endings um in the game uh and 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 Kurt is certainly dramatically struggling with that conflict um, uh, a lot, uh, and which I don't know perhaps might bring me to the first film. Not yet. I usually ask a, a certain question going in when someone's the creator of it. Now, given you've 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 created a game, and in the spirit of let's bring gaming and cinema together, like you you've been trying. The question I usually start with is, what was the kernel of the idea for The Last Worker that, that uh, got you to the game that we, we will see in 2023? 
I think the kernel actually was uh, walking into my local Sainsbury's or Tesco, I forgot which one it was, to be fair, uh, in London back in 2014 or 15. Hmm. And uh, and overnight, all of the uh, sort of tills had been replaced with those self-checkout computers. So that was that's when it happened in 2014, 15. And uh, and the employees that I would see uh, every day, uh, every other day, and some of them I knew by name, and some of them I knew what they were into, and some of them I knew played games, and others I knew had children and stuff like that, were suddenly gone. Like there were only two employees left, one behind the till. Now there was this like um, uh, sort of curtain of shame for people who buy cigarettes, you know, uh, yeah, that yeah, newly yeah. installed that in the same breath. And then there were these self-checkout machines. And one of the remaining employees was standing next to those machines, sort of staring blankly into the distance. I was just slightly nervous because they didn't know what their future had um, reserved for them. And uh, waiting for these computers to break down so they could, you know, press the reset button. Mm. So that was their new job. And and I walked up to them and I said, um, I mean, I thought that robots were supposed to assist us and not us, them. And he said, yeah, I know, right? I said, so, and the, and, and the thing that I said to him as well is like, in Terminator 2 at least, we know they looked scary and they tried to kill us. Mm. And now they're just these boring ass boxes. And, but they're doing the same thing. Um, the uncanny valley, eh? If it doesn't look like us, we're not scared of it. <laughs> yes. And so they, they really styled this. That, that what's, What really annoyed the... F- you know, can I curse on this you show? Can, yes. The fuck out of me mm. was, uh, <laughs> was the fact that these big tech nerds that have shaped our current future um, have absolutely no imagination whatsoever. They've basically all grew up on the same sci-fi movies that we have, mm. all, found them all as cool as we did. But they have no imagination how to apply any of this stuff to the real world. And also in their pursuit of efficiency and lowest common denominator bullshit, have sort of styled it in the most efficient and therefore the most inhumane and the most sort of insipid way. And it sucks. I really hate our sort of of, of the, the visuals of our current existence are so boring. You know, we don't even have a fashion style anymore right now. You know, we've all been sort of uh, educated out of having an identity. We talk about it a lot, but we don't really have it anymore. Certainly not as a culture or any culture, group of cultures anymore. It's very strange. Um, so for the last 20, 30 years, like our fashion hasn't evolved or changed. You could take a photo um, Certainly, from like 2010 onwards, uh, 2000 onwards, and like it all looks the fucking same all the time. It's weird because when you take a look at last century, you know the 2020s were very different from the 2040s, the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, the 90s. Like, but the 90s. But I would say, I mean, I think nine. I mean, this is a different part of the part of the again, not a part of the conversation I'm going to go into, but. 1990s was like the, I feel like the first decade of recycling culture up until the end of the, I think the 80s was kind of like the, the the last visionary decade. I don't mean that it was the only one. I think they all had their own vision, but I think we, we epoched, I suppose, it with what the 80s were. The 90s became like, right, okay, let's take stock. 
And I guess that might have been a psychological thing as we headed towards the new millennium. I don't know. But yeah, I think so. But but you had, I mean, it's true, it's true, because I mean, David Fincher, for instance, who had shaped a lot of the 80s for us, you know, it's like Janie's got a gun and other music videos he directed and things. Um but you know, you know, you know, Anthony, you know Anthony H. Wilson, who did Factory Records and used to manage yes, yes, the, yes. and all that kind of stuff. He he had a theory which is kind of whacked out, but it kind of pl- plays into this. And so it's about music culture. You can go, you can go fifty five. It's a, it's a, the idea of eleven year cycles since the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So you go nineteen fifty five rock and roll. Sixty six is the is the sort of pop music. Seventy seven is punk. Eighty eight is house. Is the house music revolution. And then after that, it's like Napster and stuff. I, I've written about this in 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 a very loose way because it's that idea of we, we go from. By the end of the 90s, we go from having been obsessed with culture as what the outcomes are mm. to the object that we get the culture off. So the tech becomes the thing we're obsessed about, not, That's the, true. not, the, yeah. not the thing that gets us exci- that used to get us excited, which is... Yeah, because we've suddenly become obsessed with the tool makers rather than with the sculptors, yeah. and it's, uh, it's insane. I never um, knew who made Mission Decks, but I knew who made Apple iPhones, and that feels a bit weird. Yes, yes, but at the same time... Uh, you know, you know the brand that made it, but mm. we barely know the humans that are behind any of yes. this. So, I, so I can because our basic curiosity levels have dropped to practically zero now. When ninety nine percent of the population, when you ask them who, like mentioned before, Elon Musk is, um, they go like, "Oh, it's the guy who did Tesla and stuff, and he just bought Twitter, and he's a bit wacky." And he was like, "Yeah, but where does he come from? Do you think?" And they, they're like, "I don't know." He's American. It's like, no, he's South African. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, but where from South Africa? It's like, well, from South Africa, probably. And it's like, yeah, but do you know who his parents are? And it's like, do you know this daddy had emerald mines? Emerald mines, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine what kind of people these people are? I mean, do you realize what kind of stock this man comes from? It's uh are you then surprised that you know people are being segregated in these factories, uh, black people, and and they call the areas in which they work the plantation in this Texas factory, and there's an ongoing lawsuit right now? No way. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this, like, uh, so it doesn't. We're not off track because, like, uh, and the, I'm going to say. So this, this, this started off with what was the kernel of the idea for your? So because it is because it's yeah. all connected because mm. there is. One filmmaker to me that uh, living filmmaker, and we've mentioned it already, because not only does he have a really very good understanding, as we've now know, of, of Jesus, yeah. it turns out, but he also really saw and put his finger on the sort of rise of uh, techno fascism that we are all living under mm. uh, more than anyone else. And he saw it, and specifically American uh, corporate fascism. Uh, you know, he started doing that with uh, with Robocop. Um, and he did it with Total Recall. But the film that I love and that really has shaped me a lot uh, uh, was Starship Troopers. Well, before you, before you do get into Starship Troopers, then let me introduce the audience to the concept if they've not already heard it before. It is three films that impacted everything in your adult life. And for that, we will be talking about three films, or in this instance, it's two films and one video game. And at the end of five minutes of conversation about said film or video game, there will be an alarm that will go off to, to end that conversation, and it will sound like this. 
So I do believe that sounds very similar to um, Die Another Day on the N64. Um, the uh, the sort of panic, the panic room, mo- the panic get out of there moment. Um, it also reminds me of the scene actually in Total Recall. Remember when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is going through those uh, yes, scanners? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's it's a it's a beautiful. It's, it's obviously a very ubiquitous alarm sound. It's uh, it, it, yes, and he goes ah, ah, and comes out of the thing and ah, yes, fantastic. Anyway, so the clock is ticking on your first five minutes. Oh, Starship right. Troopers. Why yeah. why has that impacted on your adult life? So I was uh, in New York uh, in the early '90s, whenever that came out. Now, hmm. and uh, 1997. And that that's when it was. Yes, because I was auditioning for Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, mm-hmm. and I went there with uh, with my mom, who's no longer with us. But we were in the back of a taxi cab, and uh, and I saw that there were tickets available if you call a certain number, and it was completely bad. I was just there for two days, one day to audition for NYU. Actually, it's a big story there. It's an interesting story there. Like the person that helped me get my act because I was studying acting, that to help me with my monologues was Sam Waterston because he was a friend of a friend's of my mom's, and so Sam uh, took me into his uh, to his house in in, uh, in New York just uh, and uh, and had me do my monologues for him multiple times, and he was just wonderful. Anyway, but um, uh, but I found that there was like a timeout in New York, whatever it was. Uh, uh, thing and and there was an ad in there that there was a screening of a new Paul Verhoeven film and if you call this number you might get tickets to the premiere fantastic and so I just called it I've never called a number in America in my life and I just dialed this thing and there it was and I had and I I just said like you've got two tickets reserved like say this number at the thing or whatever so I happened to come my mom, mom we're going to a film premiere so I took her to the Starship Troopers premiere or first screen whatever it was um, in in New York and I remember the cab driver was completely insane he drove like a madman and my mother was just cursing in Polish to me about how she was Polish about how mad the driver is and he turns around and he says dziękuję bardzo and he just drops us off in, in front of the cinema and we go in and we watch this absolutely batshit film. And mm. I fucking loved every minute of it. And, 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 and after a few minutes in, I'm thinking, this is embarrassing. I took my mom to a thing with giant bugs. And I look at my mom and my mom has just had this massive smile on her face. She was just like, oh, wow. She, fu- she loved it. And yeah. And, and then at the end of the film, She's like, Mom, what did you think? And she says, I thought it was immense. I thought it was incredible. I think it was it was agitprop. It was it was a proper political film. Mm. Wow. And yeah, with bugs, with giant bugs on Mars or whatever that you shoot in the face and whatever. And because it was so it is it is the dumbest, smartest film ever made. It's it's and and the thing that you will never truly know with Paul Verhoeven, at the same time, you can assume that he... Does. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 
What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Does it on purpose because he is a very smart man. It's like, was all of it intentional? Or not? I mean, with showgirls, you really question it. It's like, was everyone on drugs or how the hell did that happen? And yet I've seen showgirls 15 times probably because it's just delightfully shit and actually equally brilliant. Um, but but Starship Troopers, what I loved about it is that he had conned Hollywood uh, and all these executives into giving him like $100 million to make the most profoundly anti-American, anti-capitalist, anti-corporate film ever made. You know, uh, but it's, give, it, but it's interesting. That's your reading of it, and that was my reading of it. But then I remember when the rev- before I saw it, I remember the reviews coming out to say it was a pro-fascism, and that Verhoeven wasn't. To be, you're like going, when you watch the film, you're going, how have you come to that conclusion <laughs> that it's a well, pro-fascism it's, film? I mean, I made I made a <laughs> I made a I did a play with Richard e. Grant a few years ago in in London. Yeah, well, for 2007. And in the end, it was sort of like, it was my favorite review of that actually was the worst review because it was in the, it, it, it was in the times. And so I really very much cherish having a bad review in the times. Um, well, it was three stars rather than five, which I expect of any matter what, God damn it. <laughs> no, but they said they called my uh, play uh, extreme, even for an angry cartoon. Uh, and I was like, fuck I, I want everyone to always call my work this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds, that's, that's the perfect label. And that's actually exactly what Paul Verhoeven makes. Um, I mean, he makes these, these, he is clearly very angry about a lot of things, uh, but he also man- manages to make these, you know, these cartoons, these joyful, colorful, but, hey, but in this instance though, things. he's, he's, he's adapting a Robert Heinlein novel. Yeah. So he's he's not created the source material. Oh, there's our five minutes. We'll never it's know. Brutal. We'll never know. You. We'll never know. We'll never know. What do you? Uh, where? Where do you, do you want to go? Film or video game next? Oh, let's let's go to film again. Okay, right then. Jumping back yeah. in time to 1964, Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's funny you say that. I, I actually changed my title. Like, if you read the like my message, I I I, I changed my mind. Oh, did you? Sorry, sorry. I did. Yeah, yeah. Although I once organized a, a, a I once organized a double bill of Doctor Strangelove and Starship Troopers because I find that they are perfect partners to die for. Yes, movie. you've gone for Oliver. Is it Oliver Stone's to die for? Is it Oliver Stone? No, no. It's it's uh, Jimmy. It's Gus Van Sant. Gus Van Sant. Yes, Nicole Kidman and Gus. 
Nicole Kidman, yes. So 1995's um, To Die For. I'm going to, re- I'm going to rewind the clock now, Yul, because obviously this is playing with me format. You, you, you don't know what kind of stress you put me under. Seamlessly moving into your second choice is 1995's uh, <laughs> Gus Van Sant's To Die For, starring Nicole Kidman. Do you want to tell us why that had a particular impact on you? This one is actually very interesting as well, because I went uh, to on that same trip to New York, actually. Uh, maybe that's why it's on my head. Also, like they both have Dutch-sounding names, or one of them is actually Dutch, and Gus Van Sant, I think, is American-born. But this film's two years earlier, so I, so you saw it while you were in New York? No, 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 I, I saw it when it came out, but I, I remember being a, a massive Gus Van Sant fan right. um, as a kid. I wanted to become a filmmaker. And on that same trip, and that's those same two tumultuous days in New York, hmm. I I heard that he had just released a book, Gus Van Zandt, called Pink. And so I I sort of walked to a bookstore with my mom uh, and uh, and found a copy of Pink. Oh. And I started reading it. And it was the most like hardcore homoerotic love story I <laughs> I I'd ever I'd ever read. And I, you know, I I certainly wasn't prepared for that. Um, uh, and it's quite funny. I still have that book. It's, uh, it's, it's funny. Um, yeah, I just thought he just wrote some story that was similar to his film. It was not at all like his film. <laughs> um, but, uh, but To Die For is another film that pretty much predicted today, uh, like Starship Troopers, which predicted the sort of American fascism, the sort of Fox News, do you want to know more nonsense, the sort of fake news, the bullshit, mm. uh, the imperialism. Uh, to Die For is a film that looked at the attention-seeking um, madness of society, the sort of becoming a celebrity at all costs, be- be- becoming noticed at all costs, no matter what the moral and ethical consequences. And uh, and Nicole Kidman's performance in the thing is, is mind-blowing. Mm. Like she is fantastic in that film. She is... It is an incredible satirical performance. Like, it's... Uh, when the actors in Starship Troopers may not been, have been aware of the satire they were playing, uh, Nicole Kidman and everyone in her in the cast of that film certainly are. Yeah, and uh, and it's genius, and uh, and everyone needs to watch that film. Um, it uh, is a film that will make you understand. Um, when you, it's funny because you were talking about how in the eighties, perhaps sort of new culture might have stopped, and it may be true, but these two very critical films definitely saw that perhaps culture having stopped or have stopped evolving uh, in a way that it had previously, that there was something new brewing, some sort of a new form of, of fascism indeed, some sort of new form of totalitarianism. And, and to die for looks at the micro aspect of that. Mm. It doesn't look at this at a major bug war, but it looks how a, at how a family falls apart um, because of these, these, insane ideals and these insane but i guess um, i guess in a way that what you're talking about though is a, in certainly in american terms it'd be a continuation of the kind of cheney rumsfeld conservatism and how you manage that but then turn it into mass media because they you know from the 70s onwards they were trying to manufacture oh, yeah. this identity out of it and obviously the it wasn't i mean in britain it wasn't until 1990 we had multi-channel choices with the birth of b sky b and stuff so the vehicle for doing this didn't exist till the nineties in a way. Yes. Yeah. And, and here like in, in to die for Nicole uh, works for a local TV station, which she wants to be the, the, the biggest TV star yeah. and she's, she's not particularly good at her job. Um, but, but she will jump 
literally leap over bodies in order to get there. I mean, it's, and, it's, you're uh, right, though. It is, it's fairly predictive, isn't it? Because that idea of someone wanting to be famous just for no other reason than they're them famous, as opposed to I yes. want to achieve this goal that will make me famous, which obviously we now hear 10 times a dozen, you know, through any, any you know, reality TV person that then becomes a celebrity out of, out of that. Yeah, that was that film about the, that ice skater. What was that called? It came I, out a couple of years ago. I, Tonya. Yes, which is a complete ripoff of To Die For. Like tonally, visually. Uh, I mean, there's. I mean, To Die For literally ends with an ice skating scene. Um, oh, I've forgotten that. I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, watch it. It's it's incredible. And also, like, it is the last truly great Danny Elfman score where he combines his sort of sort of typical wry satirical style with heavy metal. It's awesome. It's just... Uh, I don't think I've seen it since the night. I don't think I've seen it since it come out, if I'm honest with you. I mean, I think it's... Ah, a- it's, it's badass. Watch that. Watch Falling Down as well by Joel Schumacher. Like, there is... The 90s had incredible films. Like, uh, incredible films. Perfectly timed. No, fall, Falling Down, I've seen a lot of times. I think I think maybe just, you know, it's, I guess, I guess in that kind of lazy way, Falling Down appears more often on late night TV than than uh, than to die to die for is more I guess more select in terms of its who its satire might appeal to compared. I mean even though it's got Nicole Kidman in it's it's a hell of a dark movie. Um yeah. Whereas I think I think funny. in some ways though, I think with Falling Down a bit like the mistaken reading of Starship Troopers, there's kind of a, a weird heroic reading of Falling Down as well. You know, there's there's that idea that he's right to get angry about things he gets angry he, about. He may be alt-right. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I, yeah, yeah. I, really. I, think, I mean, yeah. And first of all, he's an incel and he's alt-right for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, Before we even uh, knew. my, I went to see that at my local flea pit, as it were, which is now a furniture store. And then, oh, actually, no, now it's a block of flats. It was a furniture store. Now my old cinema. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we were, the opening scene in the traffic jam where he gets out the car this old couple sat in front of us, turned around to us and goes, this isn't gone with the wind, is it? <laughs> and it's, and it's like, you, you managed to get that for you thinking you managed to get that far before you, uh, before you realized. Well, I mean, that's genius. There was like yeah. a, a little two, a two screen cinema and they'd obviously just walked in the wrong screen, but the idea they got that far sort of post post credits before they turned around to us <laughs> to check is uh, quite brilliant. Oh, and that photography by Andrzej Barkowiak as well and Falling Down, that opening scene. Oh, my God. What a film. Yeah, mm. Everyone, all, all your listeners have to watch well, those three films now. It's cheating, of course, bringing up Falling Down, but I, I, I did it anyway because I'm a rebel. Right then. Breaking with tradition completely, even though there's not really been a tradition established yet with my three films, given I've only done it six times. Um, no. I'm already, I'm already being introduced to an outlier so uh, 1986's video game, Outrun, over to you. How does that impact on your adult life? Well, I have mentioned those two American dystopias. Mm. Um, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, having also been a big fan as a kid of like the sort of Genesis Land of Confusion video, and my parents were sort of Reagan fans, uh, my mom being Polish, I mean, she liked the idea that this guy was like, you know, trying to dismantle Russia as quickly as possible. So, of course, she liked that idea. But I, 
I, I saw that Genesis video and he wasn't portrayed as a good guy because he had his finger on the atomic bomb. So he, you know, I believe them. <laughs> but, uh, but there was, but there's also an, a side of America that we all aspire to, or a lot of us aspire to in the, in the last century. And I certainly did before I went to study in the States, which then um, sort of led me on my path to, you know, study theater combined with video game because I couldn't because uh, I worked, worked as a journalist in New York in order to pay for my my life there, and then eventually got hired by Activision to help adapt Minority Report in what turned out to be a very terrible video game for Activision at the time. But anyway, so so it, that's why it's such a formative thing. But I fell in love with with Sega as a as a young kid, mm. as a sort of six, seven, eight year old, um, and. And experiencing Outrun in the arcades in in uh, outside of Brussels in Belgium where I grew up was insane. I mean the the feeling of actually because it was a physical cabinet you were sitting inside this race car essentially That's and right, the, yeah. this cockpit it was actually moving left and right mm. for and stuff and and the engine was roaring and the whole thing vibrated when you're inside of it and it was it was as close to VR as possible at the time. Um, and uh, Sega turned out to be the pioneers in VR, actually. They never released that headset, but they announced it back in 1993. They were almost going to market, but then some kid in America barfed, and then the American division decided not to release it, and that nixed the whole project. So we could not, we could be living in a Sega-led techno, techno world now, wow. as opposed to a Zuckerberg metaverse hellscape. Um, and that would have been so much nicer because Outrun had what people often refer to as the Sega Blue Skies. It had this completely sort of larger-than-life, sort of completely idealistic vision of what the world feels like if everything is just amazing. Yeah. And and that's the thing of is a red a red Harrington jacket. You're off, aren't you? Really? That's James. You're off. You've got your partner on the on the passenger seat. (laughs) You know, you get to select your own tune at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And then you and you're not racing against anyone but yourself. You're literally just I had forgot I'd forgotten that's that was the unique thing about it compared to what yeah. I think of as racing. It's not a racing game. game. Yeah. It's a it's it's a driving game. It's a it's a cruising game. You're just it's cruising. smoking the bandit. Yeah. It's a, it's and it ultimately, and that's what's so incredibly cinematic about it to me, and was it felt like a road movie. I was mm. going on a on a on a road trip. Um, and, uh, and, and I was projecting my own story on it. And since every single time you finish one, one level, one chapter of it, you didn't get to choose to go either left, you know, on yeah. a sort of more deserty level or right to the more snowy one or whatever. Good Lord. Yeah. You, I've forgotten all you, about that. Yeah. You create your own story. Like it was a, a, there was no dialogue or anything. It was just, but it was deeply poetic, um, strangely. So, so that game really set me on the path where I mean, I've already I already loved games to begin with, the idea and everything, but the idea that something could be this could make you feel something so visceral, visceral and physical, etc. And I said, imagine if I were to really combine this with storytelling and characters and stuff, it'll be immense. So, so Outrun is just it, it has it gives me the feels, you know, it's just it's bliss. And is that I mean, is that something you've 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 come to understand about Outrun as you've thought about it over time? I mean, what what do you remember being the reaction when you, do you remember? Can you remember that kind of first time getting into the getting into the machine? Like you say, that's a very early sort of immersive version of a video game, wasn't it? I, mean, I remember the Star Wars one as well, where you got into the cockpit. You know, it was it was really novel to climb into yeah. a video game. 
No, I, I felt I felt it, and I, and I told my brother that I had to go again, and then and then and I remember that like the first time I went, like we only had a few coins, and my and we were going to share, and Jan wanted to, my brother. It was in a circus. It was like this traveling circus, and they had this little arcade truck that they were mm. traveling around with, and um, and they were only going to be there for three days. And I remember having coming back the following day again, but on the first day I just asked him, please, please let me have your coin. I need to do this again, and he's like, no, can't have my coin. And eventually you relented because I was like on the verge of tears. Ah. But you, but you, it's interesting. You remind me there of like, the, the, again, where, where there isn't like the, the internet to call upon to get what you want. The idea of going to arcades and looking what they had, like, like the, when you first arrive and being excited, they've got something you've already played. Not, 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 not the new one. It's like, they've got that thing that I like, because obviously you might get good at something so you can get value out of it. Yes. Oh, it's, <laughs> That whole experience, like I read this wonderful piece uh, uh, yesterday, actually. It was an older article in Eurogamer by uh, Jennifer. I forgot her last name now. Very good game journalist. And she wrote this wonderful piece about how, as a kid, she there was a game called um, Legend of Thor Beyond Oasis, depending on the territory where it came out, a Sega game as well, on Mega Drive or Genesis, depending on where oh. you are in the world. And, uh, and she like rented it at a blockbuster. I think it was in the UK actually. So it must've been, the um, yeah. Anyway, Legend of Thor. And she was playing it and, and rented it and she couldn't quite finish it. And so she had to return it to the rental place and then she couldn't afford it for a few days. And then she'd have to return to it a few days later and rent it again. But they only had two copies in the shop. And so whenever she had a save game and it was one of those novel cartridges that actually saved the status of the game. Right. Wow. And, so she saved it, and then she would, ho- and then she marked it. She wrote something a little bit in the manual or something. So when you, sh- she would open the box and look at it. I was like, yeah, that's the one that where I had my save game on it. But some a holes would just not respect the fact that one of the four memory slots that were in there, <laughs> maybe someone. So she ended up playing the game from the start over and over and over again. But she didn't mind. I mean, she kind of was annoyed that other people didn't have the respect for her save game. But it it was it didn't you know now like imagine if you like you have to like experience the content again for an hour you would have the new thing like, and the new DLC the new bullshit like every hour back then we we were okay with it it's interesting yeah so Outrun actually that ha- it has that feeling of just like, it's so simple it's like it only has these five different le- worlds in a way um, that you, or maybe it's a little bit more than that actually um, branches that you can get through. And it's like, and they, and they just, and sure, it's repetitive, but it never feels old. It's um, because it's just perfect. You yeah. see, I was a year earlier. I was just looking then what date it came out. Gauntlet was my, oh yeah, was my video game of sort of that sadomasochistic pleasure because obviously that was a big game and you could get fine, you could continue, and but then I'm only, I think it, I'm trying to remember now if it was eight, if, if it was late. Mid to late 80s. I must have got a Commodore 64 by then. And once, yeah, had yeah, it, yeah. once had it at home, like the idea of being able to endlessly play it for free, <laughs> as opposed to yes. needing put money in the machine, was absolutely liberating. It was... Uh... It, it was incredible. It's actually it's only now, in 2022, with VR, that we're starting to be able to experience what we as kids experience in the arcades. Mm. Just we're starting to. And people don't realize this yet because they don't they didn't have a clue 
as to how awesome this thing can get. And then imagine if you were to combine that with meaningful stories and characters and, and, and worlds, etc., that actually have something to say at stuff. It's going to be an incredible, going to continue growing into a, into a medium that actually film buffs will also want to engage with more. I, I went to a VR demonstration at Cannes, and it probably was 2019, mm-hmm. um, and it was for the Paranormal Activity game, I think it was. Mm. I lasted eight minutes, didn't see a ghost, took the headset off, gave the guy it back and said, I am anxious enough in real life. I don't need to make that my fun. Because <laughs> it was like, yeah. it was, it was like I, did, I hadn't realized how my brain was going to believe how much I'm in it. It like it really was kind of shit because a screen yes. you can look if I'm watching a scary film I can look away from a screen. Yeah, there's no escape. I don't. I don't like to freak people out artificially. And uh, and I mean that said, I think my next project will likely be something quite intense. Uh, not a horror game, but very intense. Hmm. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to give people more of a drive than, oh, everything tries to kill you. Um, you know, it's just not, I don't find that particularly interesting or inspiring. Uh, and it's not something I want to escape into. Mm. Um, actually, I don't want to escape anywhere. I want to travel places, um, ideally, which, which, to be fair, Outrun did so beautifully. Indeed. Well, look, let's recap then. The three films, brackets, two films and one video game that impacted everything on adult life are... Starship Troopers from 97, To Die For from 95, and Outrun, the video game, from 1986. Do you want to remind people what's happening with Last Worker next year? When, when, when will it be available? So Last Worker is coming out early next year uh, uh, on uh, VR, including PlayStation VR 2 and Oculus Quest 2 or Meta Quest 2. Mm-hmm. Um, PC VR as well, um, and a PC uh, and Nintendo Switch and Xbox Series X and S and PlayStation Five, and uh, so that's cool. Then mm. I'm going to be announcing a sort of arcadey game at the beginning of the year as well, which uh, so at the beginning of 2023, about. I should say there, not because yeah, yeah, 2023. Twelve months from well. now, someone lists this podcast and. They'll be like, what's happening? Yes, the beginning of 2023. So, so maybe by the time they read it, uh, they will already know. Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, and then uh, and then I also have a film that I shot in the summer called A Winter's Journey, starring John Malkovich and uh, Jason Isaacs and Olaf Udari Olofsson and Martina Gadek from The Lives of Others and uh, a bunch of other fantastic people that we shot in Poland during the summer and as with Sony Pictures Classics and the team behind Loving Vincent, the Oscar-nominated um, painted animated films. We're combining some of the techniques with our own, and that's coming out in 2024. And that's uh, it's a pretty big movie, and I'm very excited about that. It's well, I now hope, finished I hope editing. We, I hope we can get you back on the podcast to talk about the film. Uh, I'd love so as well. I'd love that absolutely. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, bye bye, everybody.
It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. 